I think one sentence will resonate with your listeners and it's I learnt that the facts are not enough and that if you are trying to convince someone to vaccinate who's very hesitant or, in fact, planning to not vaccinate and completely refusing it, that you can't just throw more facts at them. And if you do, you'll only deal with the surface levels of the issue. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Professor Julie Leesk. Julie is Professor at the University of Sydney's Susan Wackhill School of Nursing and Midwifery. Her research over 24 years has focused on the social and behavioural aspects of immunisation, what people think and do about it, programs and policies. She has a PhD, a Master of Public Health and Nursing and Midwifery qualifications. Julie is Visiting Fellow at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, where she previously worked for 12 years and set up the Social Science Unit. She currently chairs the World Health Organization's Behavioural and Social Drivers of Vaccination Working Group. She serves on several advisory committees, including for the Therapeutic Goods Administration, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, National Health and Medical Research Council, and Victorian Department of Health and Human Services. In 2019, Julie was the overall winner of the Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence Award. Julie and I spoke in late November 2021, before the current Omicron outbreak. We spoke during the midst of Melbourne's anti-vaccination protests and Julie had just published an opinion piece in The Age on November 24, 2021, titled Victorian Government's Lengthy Lockout of Unvaccinated is an Overreach. The most interesting thing to discover is that along with the obvious hate and bullying coming from the anti-vax community, Julie also received similar negative and harmful messages from those that are pro-vaccine mandate. Now, I would have expected that this socially conscious and scientifically minded group of people would encourage discussion around the best possible public health responses going forward. However, it seems that even those that have not succumbed to conspiracy thinking can still be as polarised and myopic as anyone. I am growing increasingly worried about the lack of care, nuance and reflection in our interaction with the world around us. We have become so addicted to being right and blindly picking a side that we have forgotten how to connect with our fellow human beings. Julie is an incredibly caring person with a dedication to making our world a better place. Julie's decades of work in the field of maternal health, public health and vaccine communication make her an expert that we cannot afford not to listen to. Please see the show notes for links to some of Julie's work and as always, thank you for listening to Moments of Clarity. I now bring you Julie Leesk. Julie, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we delve into some of the, the work that you've been doing right now, can you give us a little bit of an insight into who you are, some of the work that you're doing, and a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a social scientist, professionally speaking, and I specialise in vaccination. And I've been working in this field since um, 1997 when I did a Master of Public Health and then uh, went to focus very quickly on uh, research around vaccination and the social dynamics around it mostly. So since then I've had a research career mostly and, and then some teaching as well as an academic in looking at what people think, feel and do about vaccination mostly. But along the way we've had various um, periods where we've looked at specific areas of vaccination and infectious diseases. And back in 2006 through to 2010, I was looking at pandemics in particular. So that was very useful for 
bringing that knowledge to this pandemic and um, helping people to make sense of it. So a lot of my work over the pandemic has been not just doing research and a little bit of teaching, but also uh, helping people sort of navigate and make meaning of how we live with COVID or, or try not to live with it including the social and behavioural aspects of infectious disease control. So a lot of media work, advisory work. But, yeah, look, I'm a regular academic at the University of Sydney in the School of Nursing and Midwifery, but I have spent previously 12 years at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. So that was great background for focusing on vaccination, including the technical side of it as well. That's amazing. It's, it's such a, a varied and, and wide-ranging amount of work that you, you've done and you do. I was going to step into to the now, but I wouldn't mind uh, going back a little bit to where it all began. What, what led you to a want and a desire to get into the health industry and, and what was the first step into that for you? All the way along, since I was 12, I had this sort of a sense of mission really about wanting to help people. And I guess as a young woman growing up as a kid in the 70s, that's often how, you know, girls are socialised as well. But I think that's really carried through for me. When I uh, was a teenager, I was very involved in the church. So I felt that one way to have a meaningful career was to work as a missionary and help people in that way. And that is why I chose nursing. I actually preferred desk work and secretarial work because I'd done a lot of that in the holidays with my mum, who was an executive secretary. But I ended up doing a nursing degree. This is the late 80s when we had a recession and there was a lot of fear about getting jobs. So I also felt like that would assure me of work in the future. And uh, then I, I worked for a year as a registered nurse after completing three-year diploma at University of Technology, Sydney. And after that year, I got into the midwifery program at Royal North Shore Hospital, and I trained in the hospital system as a midwife. So it was unusual. I trained in the college or university system as a nurse and the hospital system, the older system, as a midwife because it was yet to go through to the universities. And then I didn't end up becoming a missionary. And, you know, I, I, well, I still um, have, uh, I am a person of faith still. I think I have very different ideas about what's meaningful for me in terms of helping other people. And uh, I guess I'm a lot more progressive and liberal in my views about um, bringing, you know, Christianity to other parts of the world so I'm much more now about I guess taking those values that are deeply embedded through through both who I am and my upbringing but also my faith and um, trying to express those in you know showing respect for people being concerned for equity wanting to be supportive and uh looking after or trying to help people who are particularly marginalised as well. And so, you know, that's that's been a constant thread. And your podcast is about values and those values have been a thread throughout my life really. So moving from uh, nursing and midwifery, I guess first of all 
Was there a turning point or something that you really hold dear in that work early on in in your life? Yeah, I I think being a nurse teaches you to be confident with people and I didn't have a lot of confidence. Like confidence is something I've, you know, this is probably hard to believe, but it's something I have struggled with. It's been like a lifetime companion. I deal with it as a problem much less now, but, you know, it does come up sometimes. So dealing with people has you know, you have to learn a level of assertiveness because you you go to a patient in a ward or you go to a labouring woman in a labour ward and you are there with them and you're interacting with their body and it's it's an intimate form of contact and you have to overcome all sorts of shyness and reticence to do that. And once you do that, you can be so helpful to people. Like I was, in fact, just sorting through my nursing notes today in helping my mum pack up her, her home here of 35 years. And I was looking through these notes and thinking, oh, gee, we had a good education in health. I had assignments on diabetes, on Crohn's disease and, and ulcerative colitis. We did sociology. We wrote about Trotsky and Marx. I mean, we had a really well-rounded education in our nursing degrees and, and they, the nurses still have them. And I, I teach in the nursing school at the University of Sydney in, in evidence-based practice. So, you know, I'm getting that from the other end now. But I felt so grateful for that education because it brings so much uh, technical knowledge, it integrates technical knowledge with an understanding of people and their context in their family, their culture and in their society. And that is the perfect knowledge grounding for working in public health, which is, you know, how I identify professionally now as a public health person because I've been 25 years essentially working in public health. So that's been a very helpful grounding to have. What made you leave, I guess, nursing and, and midwifery to then enter the space of an academic and then also in public health and, and communication? As I said, nursing was a, an excellent grounding in understanding people in their context, understanding health and illness and what health really is. and. I wasn't suited to nursing. I'm not a really sort of practical doing kind of person. I'm much better at thinking about problems and writing about problems and and trying to resolve them than actually acting on problems. So, you know, that's a that's a weakness in me which means I wasn't so suited to nursing and it's very can be a very stressful job. And so you've got to be able to go with that stress and also this sense of permeability, which is something I've also sort of sometimes struggled with is feeling people's pain and their anguish and their illness and, you know, like being really affected by the, the distress of my patients. So when you're such a permeable membrane, you know, you, you're using a biological metaphor, you can find it can be difficult to deal, not sort of take on other people's distress. And 
there are ways to learn to not do that as um, in therapeutic, you know, professions, but I just never managed to master that. So I was constantly looking for something else. So I moved throughout my nursing career. I did midwifery. I did neonatal intensive care. I worked as a community nurse. I worked in a health promotion program for pregnant and parenting teens. And I was pretty attracted to that because it was community work. It wasn't the sort of stress of the clinical environment. But, gee, it was the hardest job I've ever done because it was teenagers who were homeless and were pregnant, like they had to be under 18 to enter this service in Sydney. And they were pregnant or they had a young baby. And this service was housing them, but putting through a program of teaching them how to be young mums and how to look after their babies and take responsibility and all of those things. These young women were incredible. They were also very disadvantaged and they had many challenges in their lives. And so we were helping them both grow up and be mums and they they were doing their absolute best, but it was a very challenging job. And also my midwifery training at the time had taught me that health is about, you know, doing all these right things. And I'd worked around mostly middle-class mums at a, a wealthier area in Sydney. So I wasn't used to being more flexible with my sort of ideas of how you should behave in terms of your health. So I had to learn a lot about that. I imposed the program on the young women rather than involving them in the program. And you as a teacher, Matt, you'll you'll get all of this and you guys, you know, you you learn about this surely in your training and then have to, you know, practice it and learn it as you go. Well, I, I had to learn it on the job through some real hardship in that job. But I did. And I did this training session on helping young young people and simple things like asking them three questions like what do you want or what are you doing if they're doing something a bit silly okay what are you doing like just a moment of awareness what do you want what are you trying to get from doing this is what you're doing the best way of getting what you want is there a better way and that preserves their autonomy because that's so important to a young person but it also helps guide them in the direction of what might be more productive and also gets them to think about how they're acting which is a way to engage the sort of more rational um, objective thinking systems which can be helpful if you're very emotional about something so that revolutionized the program because then I got the girls involved in planning the program and they were totally different about it. They stopped saying, I hate this, this is like school, which was kind of heartbreaking for me because I'd put so much time into preparing each week's session and saying, oh, yeah, okay, we've got group, you know, all right, let's go. And we'd do things like we'd have a bit of fun as well because health is more than just about, you know, cooking nutritious meals. It's also about having fun and looking after the whole person and these young women had a lot of challenges in their lives and a lot of responsibility and they were often not able just to be teenagers. So I knew that I wanted to get some theory behind that that practice. So I looked around at courses and found that 
the Masters in Public Health programs looked quite good. So I called around to the different programs and one of them said to me, with our degree, we find that nurses struggle with the coursework. So I said, all right, thank you. And I didn't go back to them because I didn't really feel like my profession was welcome. But I went to Sydney Uni and I wrote a good letter and they let me in, even though I didn't have, I only had a diploma at the time. I didn't have a degree in nursing. Uh, and I got into the diploma of public health. And then you kind of have to prove yourself and show your marks are okay. And then you get into, you convert to a master's. And I just loved it. You know, I felt like the the ugly duckling who'd found her swans and it was interesting. I had this huge hunger for the knowledge. Uh, I was much more motivated to learn and therefore I did much better than I'd ever done in high school or my undergrad degree and did very well, ended up lecturing in, not lecturing, tutoring in epidemiology for the next year. And that was when I was doing this thesis on anti-vax rhetoric in the Australian print media and that actually sent me on the path of looking at vaccination behaviourally and I got work in that field and that work has continued. So it was it was serendipitous in that I looked at the vaccination side of things through my supervisor, Professor Simon Chapman, um, who'd looked a lot at tobacco control and media discourses around that. So I was looking at you know, how different parties to debates about vaccination frame their arguments in the media. And then through my PhD, I looked at how parents respond to those debates and then how doctors and nurses in general practice respond to the concerns of parents that come from those debates and how experts respond to media interviews and sort of put it together and called it understanding immunisation controversies and that was just such a, a fantastic grounding for my research career in the subsequent 20 years. That's a, an, an incredible topic um, and so, so poignant today and important today. What did you learn from that before COVID hit, before this current pandemic and the, the time we're living through now? What was it that you, you learnt from yeah. your experience? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I think one sentence will resonate with your listeners and it's I learnt that the facts are not enough and that if you are trying to convince someone to vaccinate who's very hesitant or, in fact, planning to not vaccinate and completely refusing it, that you can't just throw more facts at them. And if you do, you'll only deal with the surface levels of the issue because in our research, and I work with a wonderful team of people, so any time I talk about my research, it's actually often the research of PhD students who I supervise or postdoctoral researchers. And we have learned that people don't vaccinate for a range of reasons. Um, one is that you can't access vaccines. It's just very inconvenient. The other is that you may have had a bad experience with the healthcare system and lose trust or you fear, you, you have a belief that vaccines may affect your body in some negative way or your child's body because of, say, an underlying health issue. Or you have just a set of core values that are inconsistent with vaccinating itself or regulation around vaccination. So the idea that vaccines sort of degrade the body some way 
or that vaccines are emblematic of excessive government control. And so those values or those experiences would usually underpin vaccine rejection and then people will bring facts that they or misinformation that they garner um, or misinterpretation of existing information to support their arguments against vaccination. But if you just deal with the facts, you're not dealing with what's beneath the surface, which is the most important thing to be dealing with, to meet the person where they're at and help them work out a better way forward that's better for them and hopefully if they vaccinate, it's ultimately better for society. What was uh, one of the biggest controversies that you've had to face pre-COVID in your career around this issue? <laughs> well, it's mandatory vaccination. Is It's been a big topic this week and, and I've sort of been <laughs> put myself into the topic publicly this week. Um, but that also came up uh, in 2013 when suddenly Australia had was looking at its vaccination rates for children and seeing that in mostly they were around 92%, they were nationally, but for some age groups they were lower. In certain areas they were quite a bit lower. And there was a huge sort of shock, national shock at that, and they had maps, so it was very visual, a lot of media coverage. And then one of the newspaper organisations, news organisations, decided to establish a policy campaign called No Jab, No Pay and Play and that was, um, it wasn't a whole new policy. It was just a, a, a tweak of an existing policy that had actually worked very well, required people to get their kids fully vaccinated by the age of five or they'd lose family assistance payments by the ages of one, two and five, actually. They had a, an exemption for vaccine refusers. It was hard to get, so only a few got it, like 1.8% at most got the exemption, but it still allowed those families to put their kids in childcare and to receive family assistance payments. And this campaign triggered a set of new policies, like policy, you know, retreads, if you like, that were a bit a bit harsher and a bit more mean, and didn't actually make a huge difference to the vaccine refusers in the in the studies afterwards. But they did have some good elements to them that sort of prompted catch-ups of the older kids and stuff. But when that policy, that when that campaigning came about, I was quite clear publicly in my views of how this idea was potentially going to be not very effective and could cause some harms, such as sh- shutting out children from educational opportunities um, when the risk that those unvaccinated children posed, particularly in preschool, was not going to be sufficient to justify that educational cost to those children. These are really complex, difficult public health arguments to bring out in a public discussion because a lot of people's understanding of vaccination is, you know, quite black and white. It's you you know, everyone should vaccinate and if you don't, you, you're selfish or foolish or deviant in some ways and then so it doesn't really matter what happens to you or your child. And, again, like I was saying, yes, vaccination rates, it's very important we get them high and we need vaccines that are safe and effective. 
but let's get there in an ethically sustainable way that doesn't create harms that are excessive to any potential gains from that policy because I think in public health we're always looking at balance and the public has seen that very much. We've lived it through the pandemic, getting the balance right between restriction and allowing people to live and accept some degree of risk. And we're still getting that balance right. But, of course, this week there's been a lot of politicisation of mandates. There's been a lot of debate and intense discussion and a lot of expressions of anger around the topic. And, you know, I've weighed into it saying that some of our mandates are excessive and others are appropriate and needed. And uh, when you say some mandates are excessive, it can make people upset. So, you know, you you cop a bit of abuse sometimes, (laughs) but you have to learn to accept that. And I've developed a few strategies around that, but that's a, you know, it's an ongoing challenge for me. On on the whole, you're someone that advocates for vaccination and tries to bring the truth out and the and the I guess the positives of having a vaccine and and going through that from childhood all the way to today with with COVID nineteen and you've had your fair share of hate from the anti vaxxer movement, but you've had similar negative reaction to you also have bringing some nuance into that. Yes, that's right. I think that's a nice way of summarising. Although I'll make it clear that always I'm supportive of vaccines that are recommended because they've been through the processes of being ticked off for safety and effectiveness and sufficient safety and sufficient effectiveness because no vaccine is perfect. You know, I'm always, always about looking at how we can have high vaccination rates to protect people and to maintain human health and wellbeing. And in the process, so it's a lot about how you get there. And there are, you know, of course there are people who are against vaccination. So if you talk about um, how to sort of encourage someone to vaccinate or if you talk about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines and their importance, then people who are against vaccination can sometimes, some of them, be quite angry and abusive with you. And that's certainly happened more through the pandemic where vaccination is now affecting many more people than it usually does because we don't usually have such strong levers for adults around vaccination. So, yeah, I've had, I've had some swearing and abuse and threat and that kind of thing. I've had that throughout my professional life occasionally, but then I've also had conversations with people who don't vaccinate, who are reasonable and thoughtful people and have particular issues, and that's about finding common ground and maybe even getting them to reconsider their decision or just hearing and understanding, certainly through our research. It's about just fostering a better understanding of why people don't vaccinate. But the other side of things is what I call the not just the anti-vaccine activists, but there are people who are anti-anti-vaccine, right? So they're angry with the anti-vaxxers and therefore they've got this black and white, if you're not for us, you're against us mentality where if you express concern about a strategy like a hard, rigid mandate to increase vaccination rates, you will be sort of labelled or seen as one of them 
And that's where I've copped quite a bit of abuse over the years because I've argued for a careful, ethically sustainable and more moderate approach to both vaccine advocacy, also managing the anti-vax movement and also um, policies. So that's where I've had pylons on Twitter from lobby groups who are very uh, who argue for a very hard line and and a very sort of shouty approach to anti-vax activists and where I cop abuse sometimes from people who are very black and white about mandates and and very angry with people who don't vaccinate and sometimes it's people who are fearful and distressed themselves about the idea of getting a vaccine-preventable disease. They might have had a a terrible experience with one. So in a way I see a lot of this as trying to hold a space. My colleagues, former colleagues, Hal Willoughby, talked about this, you're holding a space for people. And holding a space for people who are upset, fearful and angry and knowing that this is not about you this is about the topic and you can sometimes become a lightning rod for these storms brewing and debates and things and you'll get caught in the crossfire. And I've had to develop a a real resilience around this and very active strategies in dealing with these debates. And it's like pretty raw at the moment because I'm like in feeling in the middle of of that right now. But, you know, I, I was asked to write an opinion piece in The Age this week and and I did it and I shared my views so I have to accept that this kind of response will come as well even though it's not acceptable to abuse people Mm. or threaten them it's it's going to happen and equally I will absolutely condemn the protests that put others at risk with large gatherings of unvaccinated people um, the threats that those people make and the violence have you found the world has become more polarised than ever or is this something that you've noticed throughout your journey in the space? Yes, yes. I Look, Matthew, as a, as a his teacher of history, you know that we look back on the past with, you know, with recall bias, as we call it in epidemiology, with a with certain lenses as to how things were then. So I'm not saying this answer is a truth, but it, I've, it feels like this topic and topics like this, um, vaccination, climate change, where there's just sort of dispute or a, a, an appearance of dispute, even though most people support vaccination, that it has become more polarised. So people are drawn to the um, either end of the discussion. And that's partly because of I think it's a lot to do with um, social media, actually. Because I studied the anti-vax movement for my PhD when the internet was just starting to be used in the late 90s. So I've seen the transition through that period. Yes, it was polarised in the print media then, but people have much more exposure now to anti-vaccine views and arguments and often the sort of the least pleasant side of it. And it, it can make them angry and get an impression of people who don't vaccinate, which is quite stereotyped, but 
it's there and they react against it and they get angry and they debate. And then that debate can, like we know that when some people have strong opinions on either side, actually debating something can make them crystallise their views and become even more adherent to them and more polarised. So I think that's definitely happened around vaccination. And one of the things I like to do is to remind people of the facts that most people accept vaccination for themselves or their children, even this new COVID vaccine, which is it's amazing, and that these groups are, yes, they're a significant movement, yes, they've been further galvanised through the pandemic, but they are often thought of as marginal by the majority of people and the people who don't vaccinate aren't necessarily part of anti-vax movements. They're sometimes individuals with particular views, but they can become attracted to those movements if they find solace in them. So, yeah, it's it, vaccination is a very interesting topic for looking at public health, epidemiological issues, the technical side of it, the population dynamics around it, because infectious disease prevention is fascinating from an epi perspective. And then from the, the sort of societal perspective, you've got some very interesting things that happen at a political level. We're seeing that this week with politicisation of mandates and vaccines. And then at a, at a sort of social and psychological level, so that's what I love about it, that all of the things I learnt in my nursing degree, which I've learnt more about, particularly psychology, I'd say, and to some degree sociology, have been incredibly useful for understanding, having these disciplinary lenses around which you look at this particular health topic that is so important to global health. You've got a set of values that you've put across throughout this podcast, but could you sort of discuss what the main values that you hold are and how they've been challenged throughout this process, but then also how you've, well, have you stuck by those values mostly and, and how have you done that? How have you ensured that you, you, you remain true to yourself? So my core values would have to be around respect for people, around equity, I think the beneficence of population health programs, so a sort of a utilitarian value where you say, well, the great, you know, the part of utilitarianism is saying greater good for the greater number. And that's like, that can be quite a harsh uh, epistemology to have in public health, in health in general, but it's, um, it's how public health often operates. The equity side of things, I think, is manifested in in different ways. So, of course, as a young person wanting to work overseas and help people, and then more recently in the last sort of 15 years, it's working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, researchers, training a couple of very strong Aboriginal women as researchers through masters in philosophy degrees, and working with some of my friends, uh, supporting them as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders 
in trying to address vaccine hesitancy among First Nations people in Australia through the COVID vaccine rollout. So, yeah, I've learned a lot about cultural respect and about injustice and about decolonising health through my uh, Aboriginal colleagues and friends. And also you ask about challenges to values. I think I'm realising that because I'm very wary of very rigid vaccine mandates where you say you have to be vaccinated or you can't work or have education or go out or participate in social and cultural life. And, yes, I think there, that there's a place for those in healthcare and aged care in certain settings but or at certain points in time. In general, no, that's probably going to be excessive and there might be other options like mandatory, you know, rap, um, rapid antigen tests, et cetera. I've often wondered why I feel stro- so strongly about this and tried to be introspective and understand that. And it's sometimes been difficult for me to really fully understand that. I think part of it comes from a strong belief in people's right to bodily autonomy and also a desire not to see people go through too much distress and hardship when they don't absolutely need to for a public health gain. So that's kind of a, a, a care side, but it's also probably a, a respect for people's liberty as well, even though I see sometimes you have to benefit the greater good for the greater number in vaccination programs. So, yeah, I think, I think this, these are all these questions about mandates that are flowing around in Australia at the moment with the COVID vaccine policies have meant that I've, uh, you know, those values have been challenged and I've got the privilege of having a voice in the media and I've been able to use that voice and sometimes that can, you know, upset people um, who want to see, you know, the, the non-vaccinators shut out of everything um, because they represent risk to them. And that's, I think that's just, it's kind of hard. It's hard to be in the crossfire, I think. And, you know, I don't, I think I've always wanted to, out of respect for people, or maybe a sort of way of being raised is to want to try and have a position which doesn't offend people too much and that's a great quality to have that's a diplomacy that can be incredibly useful in life but it can also be emotionally difficult if you find yourself getting stressed by being in the crossfire and so yeah as I said like I've developed these helpful strategies and that's been a real opportunity for growth for me as well. And, and, and an opportunity to help other people, other researchers who find themselves in the public arena experiencing abuse and harassment. So, so what have you found out about yourself in, in this journey and, um, and what's one tool that you've used uh, recently to help you uh, get through this? <laughs> well, so um, over the years, because I had these sort of, you know, Twitter pylons or debates with people where I I tried to sort of engage with them and it didn't work and I developed a a sort of a I thought oh what works like 
what what things work what strategies work to manage a problem what have we done in the past yeah we had to get vaccination rates higher in Australia we had a seven-point plan and it was a multi-pronged strategy to get high vaccine uptake because that's what you need okay I need a multi-pronged strategy to cope with harassment in social media spaces as a professional woman because I think it it happens to women more, even though it happens to men as well. And men, of course, can can have just as much difficulty. And, of course, you know, for trans people it happens much more. So, so it's called steadfast, which is each letter stands for something. So it's like S is for slow thinker, which is like if someone says to you something that provokes you in social media, just hold back. Don't reply, don't shoot from the hip, slow think it, right? Use your slow thinking systems instead of your fast thinking systems. And if you study psychology and you know about system one and two, you'll, you'll know about that. And there's some great books written about that, about that. One is called Thinking Fast and Slow. So slow think it, don't shoot from the hip. And the other is tell your employer so they know that something's going on and they may be able to support you. And we have a very supportive media office the University of Sydney, so I can use them sometimes. Or employers might have counselling services if it's that bad and you need it. Um, The other is engage supportive people, and that's so important when you're experiencing stress or even when you're experiencing social media-based bullying, that can be very supportive because it can make you feel like you're shored up. The other thing is to put some good filters around your socials so that you're not exposed to abusive messages that, you know, stress you out. And so I have that with Twitter now. I've had to put filters on. The other is to focus on your core values, which keep you like, um, I guess it's like ballast in a steady, in in a ship or something, This is my core business. This is about, and again, I say it again, supporting high vaccination coverage for recommended vaccines with ethically sustainable programs and good process. And both of those things are important. So that's what I'm going to focus on. And I'm not going to get distracted by ad hominem attacks on me or peripheral arguments. I'm going to focus on what's important. And if that means finding a shared position with somebody who's disagreeing with you and angry with you, then I'll do that as well. And that all those things, there's other strategies. I've put a in my blog called Human Factors. I've put Steadfast up there and the background to how I wrote it. But they're all there. I, I agree so much with your um with what you're saying. And then I'm one of these people that have now convoluted the public health and scientific and and that sort of understanding and what you called ethically sustainable with a political debate that seems to now have overtaken things where you're almost saying to people, hey, you're vaccine hesitant or or you're marching down through the street. Do you realise you've got neo-Nazis and people hanging the, the Premier next to you? And also when you look overseas... You see Europe and North America struggling with high rates and high death counts, even though there's a, a readily available vaccine. So these mandates have worked, but you're, you're in a way to get an, a certain number of hesitant or people that may just not have bothered. 
But in the long term, there could be an issue with this. Um, and, and we see an anti-establishment sentiment, an anti... It's almost gathering mainstream people that probably haven't thought too much about these things into the camp of an extreme set of people that, and they're probably not there or not even aware that they're entering that sort of closed information space. So I really do understand it. That's that's my take on it. My, my, I guess my my question out of this is, it's hard. Governments are finding this really difficult, and institutions are finding this difficult. And you're smack bang in the middle of you know, local, state, federal and international organisations trying to communicate ideas. My question is two-pronged. <laughs> First of all, a bit of an exploration of, of my, my take on the situation, but also institutions, are they this bad, evil thing that's jumping on us and lo- making us lose all our freedoms and we should something we should fear? Or are they, from your dealings with these places, places that we should really try to continue to ensure that they're at the top of their game helping society. I just have a lot of conversations with people that are so anti-establishment, anti-university, anti-elite, anti-this, that, and the other, and they happen to be the camp of the anti-vax that I know, and somehow that's they've, they've merged forces. What's your take on trying to do something really ethical and sustainable on a health and scientific and communications level while also understanding, I guess, this political battle and trying to realise that you're at the University of Sydney and and everyone around you is trying to do good. How how do we break these barriers? Yeah, great, great set of thoughts, Matt, and great questions. It's essentially about getting, getting the balance right. And how do you get it right? Like what does right mean? Well, a lot of my colleagues who I respect greatly think about involving publics, like multiple different people in the public, because they're not just one homogenous blob of people, involving publics in decision-making and in vaccine mandates, for example, you call that procedural justice. So we, we published an article in the Medical Journal of Australia recently on criteria that you can consider before you mandate, and if you do, here's how to do it well. And one of the things is this procedural justice element or consulting those affected and making sure that the way you do any public health policy involves a consideration of the different groups who are affected and particularly groups who face greater disadvantage. So culturally, linguistically diverse groups who face disadvantage, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples where there are huge strengths but they will um, have experienced injustice and continue to do so. So prioritising the perspectives of those different population groups in your public health policy. And we've seen governments struggle to get this balance right throughout. But I think overall I have huge trust in our governments because, I mean, I know quite a few of the people who work in public health in health departments have known them for a long time. And they're very committed, very capable people. But I think that some of the processes, there's always room for improvements so that you're getting that balance right. And it's about involving those affected in decision-making about policies such as lockdowns, such as curfews, particularly policies where the evidence is marginal, so wearing masks outside when no one's around, curfews, 
lockdowns and how they're managed and what sort of exemptions apply. Like there's so much detail and nuance in those policies. And what often happens is public health in a health emergency like a COVID outbreak will bring in a set of policies very rapidly and they're amazing how they do this. Very hardworking people who deserve a huge amount of credit Um, and they're in health departments so they're often hidden. They bring in the policies but then there's a lot of nuance there that sort of that has to be fixed up along the way because it's very hard for these individuals who come from a more privileged background to even if they try to to imagine the lived experience for a single mum in a tiny unit with three kids really struggling in southwestern Sydney and if you can bring in those multiple perspectives in an efficient way such as having community panels already established you can improve the quality of your decision making and You can improve your policies so that they have the most, I guess, procedural justice and least room for inequity in how they're implemented. And I know your listeners will be thinking about all sorts of examples through this. The towers, the Flemington Towers in Melbourne, Mm. uh, the way they were affected by that snap lockdown, the um, issues around like where I live in Darug country in Western Sydney and the way we were much more locked down than other parts of Sydney and uh, that was fine with me to be locked down and we needed it to stem the the, the spread of COVID. But they also put mounted police on the streets and made it a very, very much framed in terms of law enforcement rather than in terms of public health and community engagement. And, you know, a nice sort of ending to that story, Matt, is that, Those Flemington, I think it's in Flemington, the towers where very multicultural, many different communities living in the towers, there's been a huge effort of engagement with leaders within, you know, living in those towers but also local multicultural networks and people in health and infectious diseases, immunisation. Most of the people have been vaccinated fully and that's through doing things like running events where people can ask questions about vaccination and things that people want to do like craft nights or whatever having a tent that you have you have to walk through the tent to get into your building and the vaccinators are there so it's convenient and nobody's being forced to but through that amazing hard work and community engagement they got really high vaccination rates and that can happen with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities as well, I think, with excellent engagement, well-resourced, enabling community leaders and supporting them, Aboriginal health services, home visiting, like door-to-door vaccination with that good engagement with the Aboriginal health workers so there's cultural safety. All of that is a way to implement programs well and also to engage with communities. Now, your original question was around the protests and whether people realise who they're walking alongside. And this is the phenomenon you see with any kind of public health measure that starts to infringe on people's liberties where you get pushback and backfire effects. And it's happened throughout the pandemic. A lot of that, you know, a lot of that infringement of liberties has been necessary to control COVID well, and we've reaped enormous benefits from doing that in Australia. 
But because people are angry, they're sort of drifted towards anti-vax movements. So you see this coalescence globally between existing anti-vaccine movements and um, anti-lockdown protesters or freedom of choice or far the far right. Now we're seeing political capture there with some of our political leaders trying to grab that marginal part of the electorate. And when I say marginal, I mean out on the margins. And that has been a big problem and I think it will be a problem for vaccination because whatever you do, you don't want vaccines to go the way of climate change mm. where things have become politicised and there's that left-right gradient around support for vaccination. But I'll just say this. We've seen it with the history of vaccination protest with smallpox campaigns once they introduced what felt at the time to be very necessary mandates for smallpox vaccine in the 19th century. And we saw the growth of the anti-vax movement through those mandates because people were angry and liberty movements joined forces with small bands of anti-vax movements. And also I think now we're unfortunately seeing some of the people who are genuinely disenfranchised by excessive vaccine requirements and lockouts, for example, in Victoria for the, the rest, you know, throughout next year in the plan, that they are so angry that they're out on the streets but they're kicking own goals because no one likes to see aggressive, threatening protesters carrying around nooses so they don't have any sympathy for them and they almost paint their own straw man so that it's harder to advocate for more balanced, reasonable policies around a group that you dislike intensely. And that's one of the dynamics, the very challenging dynamics that happens with this topic and that is happening right now. And it's important to remember that most people who are not vaccinating, A, it's a really small group, right? It's about 7 to 10% of people at the moment in Australia, depending on where you are. And most of them have a specific reason that's not about them being selfish and thoughtless. By now, you know, we've got all these levers around, so it's going to, you're going to be left over with a group who are very strong in their views and have a particular reason. And it's often about worries about their own health and how that might be affected by a vaccine. So it's a safety concern. And I think we need to remember that when we think about the people who don't vaccinate. I've had about 13 moments of clarity throughout that, um, providing, you know, so much insight and expertise and, and leadership there. So I really appreciate that. And I've got a lot to, um, to take and, and I've taken a lot from what you've said. Uh, my final question for today is based on the name of the podcast, Moments of Clarity, what has been a moment of clarity that you've had recently that you'd like to share with us today? When we had the safety issues around the AstraZeneca vaccine come up and ATAGI, the technical advisory group, the vaccine expert group, had to make a recommendation around what should happen with that vaccine. So we didn't have enough supply of Pfizer, but it turned out that the AstraZeneca vaccine brought this small risk of clotting that could be quite serious, like one in 100,000 could get this clotting syndrome called TTS. And we didn't have any COVID in the country at the time, like endemic. So it meant that the, we were facing the prospect of 
ramping up the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine to millions of people and causing illness in a small proportion of those people. And that's why Atagi made this very difficult decision to avoid an excessive level of illness by recommending that Pfizer be preferred for the under 50s at the time. This is April. And that's changed since then. But essentially that was a very, they they were trying to make a nuanced decision. So they gave people the choice to still have AstraZeneca if they were under 50 and worried about the COVID risk. So they didn't ban it for the under 50s, but they were saying Pfizer's preferred, but we didn't have enough Pfizer in the country. That was so such a complex issue. And a lot of people have looked back on that time and been very critical of the way it was managed And the communications around it, particularly by government, was not done well at all. There were many lessons in in those events for risk communication. But it was a time when I realised that people need very clear black and white recommendations at a population level. And, you know, I've studied and taught risk communication like how you interact with the public during a health emergency. Um, And sometimes we call it crisis communication, but I've studied it for many years and taught it at the University of Sydney with my colleague Claire Hooker. But these events made me see just how much people need very, very clear black and white guidance around something, even though you're going to have knock-on effects from that like if you ban AstraZeneca for the under 50s then there are people who really want that protection who can't get it so that would have been a problem but as it was we confused people and we've suffered the legacies of that confusion for some time to come including remaining confusion for particular communities who aren't reached by the sort of everyday 11am press conference so yeah my moment of clarity has been that people need need much clearer recommendations than I assumed they would need. And um, clarity is important, even though it sometimes means a loss of nuance. Thank you so much. Thanks for all your time today. Thanks for everything that you've provided us. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, keep doing the work you're doing. And I'm sure that uh, for every negative press and every death threat you get, you've got so many people that are celebrating everything you're doing. So. Yeah, really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thank you for what you're doing with your podcast, the thoughtful questions you have and the theme, which is fantastic. And look, as I said, I I work with a bunch of people. It's not just about me. And, uh, And I like to acknowledge my colleagues in this field who bring so much knowledge to it and, and all, of course, all the wonderful people who have communicated with me and my colleagues in, you know, what's not an easy space um, but have been very kind in communicating and sending their support. So that's also gratefully accepted. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me 
on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.